Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, new plot lines are heating up in Excalibur number 96, Fireback, featuring the Brits stealing the Hellfire Club back from the Americans, plus the related return of Margali Spardos and the unrelated but far more welcome return of Lockheed. Excalibur number 96 was originally published in April 1996, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Carlos Pacheco on pencils, Bob Wyacek on inks, Adrian Lenshaw and Malibu's Hughes on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. What's going on here? There's oh. another one. He caught it from behind. With that arm. That two arm, pounds. That arm was loaded the last time they checked it. I'm slapping myself in the face. You know what this is? This is an illusion. No, it's another two of them. Double doink. Double two doinks. If one wasn't enough, Welcome back to the Carlos Pacheco era of Excalichat, which I'm still very excited about, though I'm also having a little bit of trouble telling some folks apart in this issue, a lot of characters to keep track of in this yeah. second issue with a new artist, um, but we'll talk about that in due course. For now, we need to introduce ourselves. I am Dr. Anna Papard. You know the drill, sexy gendery stuff and sequential scholar and Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I will not be taking questions about Mr. Wagner's fashion sense at this time. I am lying. That is literally all I want to talk about. But we <laughs> gotta get through these intros first we'll get to it i am usually joined by dr christopher maverick who is absent today his first missed episode ever it's election day in pa and he's off busy with that but it was the only day we could do it so we will soldier on in his absence while thanking him for doing his civic duty and i'm sure he'll have stories from the polls upon his return i am however joined by my other regular co-host andrew what's your style this week as with every week, I am currently rocking emotionally repressed Canadian cargo chic. I am <laughs> Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. John's University and co-project lead of Sequential Scholars. I'm also project lead of the Claremont Run now and again, which just celebrated a milestone of um, 50,000 views on our YouTube channel, which is nice. pretty delightful. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you still doing, you're still doing Throwback Thursday tweets, right? Yep. But are you doing any new content these days? Now and again, yeah. yeah. Anytime I feel like writing something new, I'll just throw it up there. Yeah, I know that in some ways it was a relief and in some ways you miss it, which I can appreciate because like, holy cow, when I think about how much work we do on Sequential Scholars and thinking about you doing that every day on Claremont Run, it I just admire all over again what an achievement <laughs> that was, Andrew. It My was goodness. an experiment. And again, like the whole <laughs> thing about it was, would the work be good enough to support daily findings? Mm. And it totally was. So it was delightful. 
It is indeed remains delightful. Um, we are joined this week by a fab fellow podcaster who's friends with our friends, so it's time we got to know him a little bit better. The pod's thrilled to welcome one Matthew Lazowitz. Welcome, Matt. Pleasure to be here. We're so happy to have you, and I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about all the fab stuff you get up to. So Matt Lazowitz is a writer, editor, and podcaster at ComicsXF. He somehow thought it was a good idea to co-host two weekly podcasts, WMQ&A, creator interview show with his longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will with Will Nevin, which may or may not be the Batman version of Battle of the Atom. Matt isn't telling. So Matt, I obviously know you're a longtime comics reader. I really enjoyed the collecting convo you did for the WMQ&A 5th anniversary special with Dan and Adam, our friends. Great hearing you talk about some rarities there, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your comics origin story. When you first fell in love with funny books, what was the catalyst? Do you remember that formative moment in your life? Oh, sort of? (laughs) It is far enough back that that memory is hazy, because the first comic I I remember loving and I'm pretty sure I had been you know handed comics far too young I started reading early and my uncles would just give me comics and when I was yeah. moving when my we were cleaning out my grandmother's house I found all of these comics that I'm that they had gotten me at some point or another but the the comic I remember that is in my head my first comic quote unquote is only sort of technically a comic because it was a guidebook it was the second issue of who's who in the DC universe oh, okay mm-hmm. I actually checked which is cover dated April of 1985 meaning a release date of probably March of 85. So I was four years old and that's characters whose names mostly begin with B, which explains so very much (laughs) about everything that came after. That's funny. We've talked about the official handbook of the Marvel Universe many times on this podcast. That was the intro point of a lot of people we've chatted with, as well as the trading cards from the 1990s come up a lot Mm -hmm. as well as entry points. Official handbook is great, but who's who was a step the next level? Because if you go back and you look at the art in who's who, all original art, and it was incredible. It was every legend of the Bronze Age and a lot of the Silver Age legends still doing work. Jack Kirby did all the New Gods pages throughout. Original New Gods art for (laughs) all of that. It's absolutely gorgeous. Bernie Wrightson Swamp Thing stuff. Yeah, it's really a beautiful book and it took me years to run down a complete collection of them and as is the way with those of us who still love our physical comics, the minute I finally bought that last issue out of a bin at a con <laughs> they announced the omnibus oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> having the originals is still like a special charge i'm sure you feel yeah. that as a collector oh yeah oh no no argument there but still it's just it's it, i've always said you know if you want i said to friends if you want to to get the trade of something get me hooked on getting the singles mm. because the minute i get the run <laughs> you'll get your trade <laughs> well tell me a little bit about the rest of your journey like have you been a comics reader consistently through throughout your life? Uh, yeah. Um, since I was nine years old. I I know a lot of people have that valley where they sort of drop out mm-hmm. sometime in high school or college. I never had that. I started regularly buying my own comics in January of 1990. I'm one of the 
Children of Batman 89. That was the okay, thing yeah. that really pulled me in. If you're of a certain age, there's a lot of us. But I, I never stopped reading. And part of that was that I worked in comic shops from high school, college, and after. I pretty much regularly worked in one comic shop or another for 16, 17 years. Oh, okay. So it was not something where you know, I didn't have to worry about the money or the access because mm -hmm. the comic shop was within a 10 minute walk of campus and I was working there three days a week. Oh, and man. I wish I've Matt was here to talk been... to you about some store experiences because, yeah, he worked at the yeah. store throughout his teenage years. Anyway, sorry, Matt, yeah. go ahead. No, no, it's, we all have those war stories. You, you combine <laughs> the two part time jobs between the comic shop and a borders at the same time. <laughs> oh, I have stories. <laughs> I have so many stories. Well, that but, is that is tempting me. I mean, the question I was going to go to next, though, was going to be, I don't know, what keeps you reading comics all this time? I mean, access obviously is a huge thing. I mean, that's not nothing. I talk about that all the time in terms of just people getting into comics, that access is such a huge issue. But I mean, clearly you're hooked emotionally as well. I mean, what are some of, some of your main comics jams? Like, what are the kind of like characters and series you keep coming back to? Obviously, Batman's going to be going to be pretty central there. I mean, you've you've alluded to this a couple of times already. But yeah, I don't know what keeps you coming back. It's one of those things that at this point, 30, no, Hell's Bells. <laughs> Pushing 35 to 40 years later. I mean, for, I'll be, if you count that first comic, that'll be 40 years come next year. It is just par part of it. It's part of my DNA at this point. Mm -hmm. It's just comics are what I, what I do, what I love. It, it's almost like act, asking and I, I say this as someone who lives on the jersey side of the border with philadelphia like you can see the bridge into the city from my house it's like asking eagles fan why they're an eagles fan <laughs> it's just part of who i am yeah. But my reading tastes have evolved tremendously over those intervening decades. I mean, between it's not just Batman or the X-Men anymore. I mean, I read a little bit of everything I have. I'm not going to say how many comics I own because this could get out and I really <laughs> don't need anyone to hear that particular number which is terrifyingly large but <laughs> it's i'm a firm believer that comics are a medium not a genre right and so my reading at this point is wildly diverse i mean just i turn around and i look at the bookshelf behind me and aside from some batman keys i've got the whole bunch of the brubaker and phillips graphic novels, various Marvel trades, the Kirby Fourth World, some all ages graphic novels, the Adventure Zone collection. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> all my, I, I try all sorts of things, and every time I think I might be out of things to read, there's always something yeah. new. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I should read more diversely than I do. I'm a horrible rereader of things, which is what stops me up a lot of the time. But uh, let me ask you a little bit about X-Men comics and sort of your specific history there. Like, I mean, has that been a franchise that sort of you've followed over the years? I 
don't think there's ever been a period since I first read an X-Men comic that I haven't been reading something mutant related. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I've always been on the core X-Books. There are some gaps in there that Claremont return, the Alan Davis is the Claremont return era, the the color era post AVX. But I think as with a lot of X-Fans, my first X-Men comic was the absolute wrong comic to be a first (laughs) x-men comic uh in my case it was uncanny 279 the middle part of the muir island saga oh my god somebody else had that answer i swear someone else had that answer at some point (laughs) which is just you know you're at a complete loss i mean it was that that new mutants 100 and x factor 68 I all read in a <laughs> relatively short span of time, and all of them are ends of things. Yeah. I remember being utterly befuddled at the final panel of New Mutants 100 as Strife takes off his helmet and reveals that he looks like Cable. I didn't know who Strife was, <laughs> so it was like, oh, okay, so this guy is here, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and my, oh. my lifelong love of Cyclops probably comes from X-Factor 68, mm-hmm. but yeah, cause that, that, Scott is my, has always been my favorite X-Man, wow. even when that was a much less popular answer. <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're lovers of Cyclops on this podcast. I feel like we've gotten in some jibes at various times, but... Oh, Scott is absolutely easy to, to razz, and I have no particular issue with that. It's, I, I love Batman, a guy who is easily described <laughs> varyingly as a fascist, a psychopath, or a whiny mama's boy. You, you can make any of those points easily, and while I would disagree with them wholeheartedly, I cannot argue that they are. there is textual evidence for any of the above. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's very generous of you, Matt. (laughs) You know, there's that line from Game of Thrones, I drink and I know things. For me, it's that I read and I like things. I am not a person who will argue with someone about their interpretation of anything, barring it being factually inaccurate. Because everyone has their opinion and everyone has the right to their opinion, no matter how much I might disagree with it. (laughs) I enjoy a spirited debate. (laughs) We're certainly certainly of the mindset of embracing subjective readings of text on this podcast, definitely. I mean, what are comics if not (laughs) subjective experiences? But um, let me ask you about Excalibur specifically, and I have a question about Dan for you, which is, you know, when Dan came to you and said he wanted to do this Pete Wisdom centric Patreon podcast, I mean, what was your reaction to that? I mean, were you ecstatic about this brilliant idea? It was so utterly on brand. I <laughs> could not be anything other than pleased. Aww. I mean, as I said, thir- Dan and I have been best friends for three 30 years. He was yeah. best man at my wedding. I was best man at his wedding. His son is my godson. Ride or die. I would have supported him regardless, Aww. but I knew this was going to be a delight. Because yeah. we've been talking about Pete Wisdom since Pete Wisdom first appeared. So it was time for somebody else to get in there too. Oh my god. That's funny. Should I ask you about your, your own Pete Wisdom thoughts now or should we talk about it in relation to the issue? Because he's not in this one much, but he's been a focus of some of our discussions lately. But is, is he a character that you enjoy yes oh no uh if i would be right there standing at dan's side arguing that pete wisdom is awesome regardless of my relationship (laughs) with dan i love pete wisdom oh okay yeah no we we've 
we came up, Dan and I came up together in Loving Pete. And we both started reading Excalibur around the same time because neither of us started it back in those, you know, halcyon days of Claremont and Davis or just Davis. We both would have come in around the uh, the dark times uh, <laughs> when it started crossing over with the X-Books around Fatal Attractions and things. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've read the good stuff before that since. And like, oh, now I understand why people were upset about the, you know, the changes to this book. Oh, but I had yeah. no frame of reference for any of that when I started reading. I knew Kurt and Kitty and that crew from their trading cards. I didn't know them as, and I guess from Pride of the X-Men. Absolutely. <laughs> Surely one of the greatest <laughs> television pilots of all time. <laughs> Nothing beats Australian Wolverine. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll ask you a little bit more about Pete in relation to this issue, because I'm very curious about the question of like whether other characters can hear Lockheed talking or whether it's just Pete. <laughs> I, 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 I will have some thoughts on that. Awesome. Well, let's do an issue summary and then we'll get into your first impressions of this comic. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never fire you, but we do have your back and we'll prove it by offering you a plot summary. Excalibur number 96 opens with one Jean Grey Summers greeting an unexpected guest at the gates of the X-Mansion, one Alistair Stewart, who looks a little worse for wear and comes bearing dire warnings for Excalibur. Elsewhere, Shinobi Shaw, Black King of the New York Hellfire Club, tells a lady friend he can't have sex right now because he's too busy thinking about Brian Braddock. <laughs> specifically about how he might enlist Brian to be his eyes and ears in the London branch of the Hellfire Club. From the Big Apple, we jump to Muir Island, where Kurt, Kitty, and Piotr are playing soccer or football, if you prefer. The main topic of conversation is Kurt's new look, featuring a buzz cut and goatee supposedly inspired by another man Amanda fancies. They're interrupted by Megan, also sporting a new, in her case, gravity-defying look, who informs them Jean is on the phone. The team talks with Jean and Alistair, who says Black Air is trying to kill him. Kurt and Megan decide to fly to New York in the Moonlight Flit to collect him. Phone calls follow phone calls as Shinobi Shaw calls Brian, claiming they have a mutual interest in investigating the strange activities of the London Hellfire Club. These strange activities include the shape-stealer Mountjoy infiltrating the inner circle, certainly without good intentions. Brian is skeptical, but agrees to give it a shot. Outside the base, Pete Wisdom chases Lockheed, who has stolen his clothes, and Doug Lock decides that the only way to make sense of who he is is to take a different approach, specifically a chaotic one. Meanwhile, tension brews in the London Hellfire Club inner circle as the Red and Black Kings accuse each other of various things and the as yet mysterious Red Queen wants to hasten their plans. Elsewhere, Sebastian Shaw, previously thought to be dead, meets up with the mutant agent of Black Air, Scratch, to trade a mysterious object hidden in a very mysterious box for some very mysterious information. Sometime later, the Moonlight Flit on its way back to Mere Island, bearing Kurt, Megan, and Alistair, is shot down by agents of Black Air. Not again, moans Kurt. Oh, he's about <laughs> to ruin yet another plane. So Matt, give me your first impressions of this comic. Anything that you're particularly eager to talk about? this is busy (laughs) it is (laughs) is especially busy even by ellis's somewhat chaotic standards at this point it's taking some of the plot threads most of the plot threads that have sort of been seeded throughout the run and then spinning more into it so no one plot thread gets more than two or three pages contiguously throughout so there while there's a lot to talk about there's not a lot to talk about any one thing too Mm -hmm. much and knowing this run backwards and forwards which i do it's it amazes me since i've read it so many times in a chunk Mm -hmm. that it's like 
oh wow so little so much is set up and so little happens in this one particular issue it's a lot of talking heads yeah i mean i'm doing the summary and i'm like oh there really was another scene about a phone call okay okay that's Mm -hmm. cool (laughs) (laughs) the the x-men pick up the phone for once it is a change for once Uh, i know And I mean, I think we'll get into it as we discuss some more here. But I think part of this might be Ellis, who is still a fairly new writer, doing a thing where he's asking his artists what his artist wants to draw. Uh, and instead of dropping out any of Ellis's own ideas, he's just adding the things that Pacheco wants to draw on top of it. Yeah, I mean, what occurs to you as an example of that in this issue? Because I'm curious, we had a great conversation about Carlos Pacheco in our last issue. I mean, I love the opening splash with, with Mountjoy, which is just kind of there to look pretty. But well, And that's exactly it. Mountjoy is a Pacheco character. Mountjoy serves no purpose in this arc other to me it feels like other than pacheco liked drawing that character in the bishop miniseries he did mm-hmm. with john ostrander mm-hmm. and was like you know i really like this character to alice and i was like sure i'll add mount joy in here why not what's one more thing that makes a lot of sense given like the two uh well full splash and i think mostly splash that we have of mount joy like both the opening one that's the splash of his face and then the later one that's a splash of him doing his shape stealing thing um with a lot of that wonderful energy that pacheco brings to his sort of motion lines and stuff so yeah you saying that makes a lot of sense in terms of like (laughs) that does really just feel there because he wanted to draw those things and i appreciate it because they're nice drawings but uh, adds to the busyness of this issue. It does. It's just, as a, a fan of another bit of work here, it's funny how much this issue, and because of the crossover before it, feels almost like Ellis and Ostrander are building a little corner of the X universe, since Ostrander was writing X-Man at the time. So the two parts of the previous crossover are Ostrander on one and Ellis on the other. And now this character from the Ostrander-written Bishop series is popping up in here and Shaw wanders off at the end saying follow Sebastian Shaw into X-Man yeah yeah that is interesting uh I want to I want to talk about the Hellfire Club and some of our other characters here but maybe I'll pick up Andrew's first impressions first and then we'll get into that I mean how are you feeling about this one Andrew I heard you agreeing about the busyness (laughs) of this issue so my working theory is that Ellis treats characters the way i treat books where you like buy a bunch of them before you finish the other ones because he just (laughs) keeps bringing characters into this series without developing them without establishing their dynamics their rapports Uh, and every new issue is wouldn't it be fun if i had colossus wouldn't it be fun if i had rain sinclair wouldn't it be fun if i did something with doug lock finally um wouldn't it be fun if i brought lockheed back whilst introducing pete wisdom this really centralizing character uh in this book um so yeah no i i I completely agree it's it's too busy um and i think that's having diminishing returns and is affecting the depth of the book even though we know ellis can write depth um, so i'm struggling with that Uh, in terms of the the splash uh, that matt was just talking about i kind of suspect that's recycled art um that page goes nowhere it's a splash page of this guy he's not on the next page uh there's no there's no scene there's no establishing or anything like that so i don't know that that, that might have been an industry thing in my eyes or i'm completely wrong and it was just kind of a um, an underdeveloped or undeveloped um, thread 
Um, but other than that, like I kind of like some of the creative swings in this issue. I think there's good pieces to it. And I do like that Ellis is reaching for a new direction in a lot of ways. Uh, and some of them um, in terms of their ideals make a lot of sense to me. I, I, I love the idea of um, associating Brian with the Hellfire Club and exploring yeah. that as a way to comment on his privilege. That's cool. Very into that. I, I, I kind of like that he gives some of his characters new looks because it's it's been a while. Um, yeah, no. So I, I think there's some good stuff happening here. It just gets lost in this 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 busyness, as Matt framed it. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cultural context of the Hellfire Club, which obviously I know you're very qualified to speak to, Andrew, and we're all very familiar with a bunch of these characters too. I mean, I made that joke off the top about you know <laughs> stealing it back because the Black Queen look from from Dark Phoenix Saga is taken from a costume that Diana Rigg as Emma Peel wears in an episode of the Avengers television show not the superhero Avengers the spy fi Avengers and it's a wonderful little bit of intertextuality in part because Diana Rigg designed that costume herself and like I really love that little bit of history could you tell us a little though about that cultural context Andrew sort of beyond that because obviously I know it's something you've written about before and this name of the health Fire Club is something that we're very familiar with, but like when Claremont first brought that concept into X-Men comics, like what was some of the history that he's referencing? What was some of the symbolism that was sort of included in some of those stories and why does it matter? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the like um, sort of on the label point is just this idea of an aristocracy running the world largely in the shadows. We've seen that come up in comics a lot, even before mm -hmm. and certainly since, right? It's, it's, it's a fun villain that you can sort of build some cool stuff out of. Um, what Claremont and Byrne did with it was, um, one, they sexed it up to an absurd degree, uh, making <laughs> yeah. it into a, a fetish club, which worked really well for some of the sexual symbolism in the Dark Phoenix saga, and, and allowed Claremont to introduce some of his BDSM symbols into X-Men um, very, very directly, something he would cultivate throughout his entire career, regardless of which which book he was writing. Yeah. Uh, and then the other piece that I think is really interesting um, in terms of contrast to this Hellfire Club um, is that the Hellfire Club in X-Men is specifically associated with this this anglophile culture um which in a colonial context reads as you're not really a democracy uh the old british ways are still running things so i i think tracking how that changes when you have a british hellfire club is very interesting for me um but yeah no that's basically the core of it they're um greedy they're unethical um and they are also traitors to like their species um they're mutants who hate mutants um which is kind of interesting I, again, there's some cool political and cultural pieces in the Hellfire Club um, that are mobilized to varying degrees of success. Yeah, I mean, that's very fair. I mean, I, I love, I similarly love the idea of associating Brian with it. And we get some good little background details here of like Brian's family is part of the Hellfire Club, right? So associating it directly with aristocracy there and some of the things that have come up with Brian in the past, which there are so many Brian continuity things that we just like haven't gone back to or just like oh right nope. his dad was from an alternate dimension <laughs> like he's sort of magic and like he's got that whole thing under braddock manor where he's got that like alternate dimensional computer and like what's the current state of that and so there's a lot of things like that with brian and then like all the stuff that was brought up recently having to do with like the ways that he was implicated and all of these you know like colonial exploitative business practices and everything there's a lot oh and he was implicated 
included in um, the Genosha stuff recently as well, too, through his family. So there's this through line of sort of criticizing his privilege and the aristocracy that's bound up with that. But that critique hasn't been like focalized in a way that like I've found effective thus far. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on it, Matt? Are you excited about the introduction of the London Hellfire Club? <laughs> this The London Hellfire Club reeks of Ellis's X-Files fandom to me. Mm, okay. Ellis was noted mm. was a noted X-Files fan. Wrote a lot about it at the time on his message boards, the now infamous Warren Ellis message boards. Yeah. But this is the further expansion of the conspiracy that was just Black Air to begin with. I mean, I was, I'm going to just continue digging the, the hole of just how big a geek I am Go by saying that I m recorded off the television the entire series of the X-Files, every episode, mm -hmm. had them all on VHS. And so this feels like that awkward expansion of the conspiracy there that started out just as the mysterious cigarette smoking man in the background. And then suddenly you have all of these different characters. This is, well, Cicluna and Threadgold aren't interesting enough. So let's tie them into the London Hellfire Club and let's make the conspiracy backbench even deeper. And it's also pulling in aspects because Lobdell had set this, no, Nicieza, right, pardon, Nicieza had set this up in X-Men not too long before with Betsy meeting Shinobi Shaw at the Hellfire Club, saying that she, with Warren, saying that she had gone there as when she was younger. Yeah, so this is Ellis yeah. having that thread already and actually tying something that had been played with a little in X-Men 29 into what he's doing here as well. Yeah, I mean... Do you feel like this is like effective to like go to the well of deepening that conspiracy? I mean, it was, I mean, you know, I don't know how you felt about it back then or whether you feel differently about it now, but like, is this an interesting antagonist to you for these characters in this book? If we had time to get to know any of them, probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But the majority of these characters don't get names. You look them up on the Marvel wiki and their names were established in handbooks that they just are the Black King, the Red King. I mean, the Red Queen is an established character. We find out, we know who the Black Queen is, but we don't really find that out until issue 100. And even then it's a minor little beat that's just like, oh, isn't that nifty? But we don't know any of these characters. I feel like if time could have been spent making them more interesting if they had been pulled in earlier or if we had instead just kept it within black air and had Cicluna and Threadgold as the big bads, maybe, but they themselves aren't terribly interesting either. They're very much generic evil spy person. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm interested in that potential to tie the spy organization in with the aristocracy and, you know, institutional power and, you know, hereditary power and the links there, which, you know, is clearly something Ellis is interested in, like, He's you know, had those long narrations critical of spy institutions right when he came on the book, right? And I mean, that's a huge part of Pete's whole story. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard for me to, even as I'm saying that, I'm just like, this book doesn't deserve like that level of sophistication. I mean, we don't have those connections like teased out here. I mean, it's just like introduced to a bevy of characters, as you're saying. And I mean, the introduction of the Red Queen, I mean, you know, spoilers, it's Margali. I mean, I already said that she's returning. So I mean, it's not a spoiler. This comic book came out 27 years ago. But it's so weird because there's that issue with the art where it's like we see her whole face. <laughs> so it's like it shouldn't be shocking and yet we don't know 
know how Pacheco draws her, and she looks very different than she looked last time. So although her face is revealed, we just don't know who she is because she's not named on panel here. And that always struck me as such a strange thing. Like, I don't think I even mentioned this yet, but I, I did this issue for the Pete Wisdom podcast with Dan. And like, that was the thing that I was the most hung up on. I was like, wait, that's Margali, right? I mean, I remember this being Margali, but it's not mentioned here. <laughs> and I was really baffled and I did have to go back and I was like, no, 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 it's her. It's just weird. Um, It's just weird. And like, she's sort of got like, you know, spiky nail fingers now or something just to make her look cool. I mean, maybe another interest in instance of something Pacheco just wanted to draw. I mean, looks great. Looks great. But um, <laughs> not really the standard look that we associate with Margali, which makes it confusing. But um, yeah, there was a lot of that in this issue. And I've always wondered if the twist that we get in 100 as to who the Black Queen is was meant to be a twist or it's just mm. all the different artists just meant that that character <laughs> didn't look consistent enough for yeah. it to be easy to put two and two together on who they were. <laughs> a bit strange and i also wonder that this is probably me reading also giving too much credit to ellis's intention but that again i, I view this as very x filesy and getting to this point where we're seeing not just reference to but the london hellfire club and thus black air with alistair stewart terrified of them and worn down that we are at the point culturally where doctor who is at its lowest Mm -hmm. The show's been canceled for six years, and we're a few months away from the somewhat disastrous <laughs> Eighth Doctor movie. And so that's nearly 10 years from the advent of Modern Who. So this could be read as commentary of how The X-Files is a science fiction franchise and what it means for science fiction overtaking the old school that was Doctor Who. Or it just be could be that Ellis doesn't really have any affection for there and the Weird Happenings organization and likes his dark modern sci-fi and it just is an example of that versus an actual commentary on it. It did occur to me as well, Matt. It occurs to me that that is like a good reading of it, just given how Alistair is introduced. I mean, we get the like, you know, he's from who? Who? And like, you know, really underscoring the fact that like most of the characters on the team of Excalibur don't even know who Alistair is. So I mean, it's both like this forever ago era of the book, but he does like get presented here as though he's an anachronism, right? He's this character from this other reality, almost sort of showing up in the current context of Excalibur. And most of the people that are left don't even even know who he is i, I think that's kind of a, a good execution on ellis's part how do you take a character who's kind of silly and happy uh all the time and bring him back in and get kind of the the nostalgia and maybe fan service for, for doing something like that um while at the same time recontextualizing him for this this dark new tone that you've been um, pushing on this book uh, and the easy answer is he was away being traumatized uh, and he comes back hurt and dark and therefore well suited to the new established status quo um, so I think there's there's a good execution there again Ellis showing good instincts for how to build continuity out of something that is wildly discontinuous something that we criticized him for when he first came on the book uh, and just how jarring that transition was I mean yeah I mean I do have to mention the thing that Alistair just mentions in a dialogue panel which is that they um, basically tortured and killed all the war piece which you know that's like quite a thing that happens off panel um, in this yeah. comic book casual genocide. Um, yeah, casual genocide of children just that's cool 
I mean, like, it definitely helps establish the darker tone of the book. And I mean, some of that will be sort of revisited in future continuity, not in this book, but still. Given how much, like, empathy we tried to have with the Warpies when they showed up, I was just like, oh boy. <laughs> that was quite a little line just to throw in there. A lot of, a lot of, a lot suggested in that one line of dialogue. Is there an opposite of a save the cat moment? Because if there isn't, it's a kill the Warpies moment. Yeah. I think we've, yeah. we've created it. It's pretty brutal. Oh my god. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> okay. I do want to say, though, that I, I like the Hellfire Club as a Pete Wisdom villain, because mm -hmm. I, I think okay. the idea of a subversive power operating at all levels of the government, that, that's a spy caper. You know what I mean? Like, like that works yeah. really well. But again, the inconsistency doesn't work as well for things like Brian and Megan, who are fantastically overpowered. Um, Doug Locke, same thing. Doug Locke could hack any computer immediately. Um, so <laughs> it, again, just feels like um, Ellis making the book his own which again i'm not criticizing for that that, that makes sense to me uh, he's created a villain who works really well for what pete wisdom is yeah yeah i mean that's been kind of the mission right i mean yeah exactly well, let's talk let's talk about the pete of this a little bit because i do want to ask you <laughs> a little bit more about this character mad knowing now that you have an affection for the character and we'll get to kurt's new look as <laughs> our last topic because <laughs> of course i have thoughts about that but yeah tell tell me matt do you think that only pete can hear lockheed or um is pete just is pete just losing it what are your thoughts on it the pete and lockheed stuff dan and i were actually talking about this on monday when i said oh yeah i'm actually yesterday God help me! It's only yesterday <laughs> uh, when when I said I was doing this episode, and we both agreed, having you know reread this in now recently, that the Pete and Lockheed stuff reads the week much weaker now than it did when we first read it, because it is there is an example. It's an example of tonal dissonance. It's this wacky slapstick. Like I hear yakety sacks. Yeah. When I read it. And I mean, at, when I first read it, having no frame of reference for Lockheed, I assumed that, oh, yeah, you know, Lockheed is just talking to Pete and he's basically doing it to fuck with him. Yeah. Can I say that? Sorry. You could say that on our pod. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm so used to being in two podcasts where I can swear I tend to forget that I not everywhere can I <laughs> it has happened many times <laughs> but yeah at the time I just thought oh he's he doesn't talk and he's doing this now just so that yeah. everyone thinks Pete is crazy by saying the dragon talks to me <laughs> I yeah, yeah I don't see any textual reason why Pete is would be hearing things but also it I, I now having read years and years and years of X-Men comics and all of the Kitty and Lockheed stuff the sapient Lockheed thing always makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, we, I, we, ha yes. we have oh, discussed this before. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I, I frankly am very glad my cat is dumb as a stump and not sentient because mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to think that her constantly curling up on my lap is active jealousy at my either of my partners getting to spend the time with me that she doesn't. I just think that that's a cat being a cat and I'm her person. But if she were sentient, it becomes uncomfortable. And that's me as an adult. Lockheed as a sentient being mooning. I mean, and again, now here we're getting into the, the questions of Kitty's age, which is a whole, but Lockheed was definitely with her when she was well underage. So in retrospect, it makes me uncomfortable, but it, it, again strikes me as ellis just this is ellis just being wacky it's like okay i need something to break the 
tone, and I don't want to keep making fun of Moira's coffee. So yeah. <laughs> let's have Lockheed torment Pete Wisdom. I love that I can, you know, tell you. I was like, oh, we've spent at least an hour on this podcast talking about the implications of Lockheed's sentience for his relationship with Kitty Pryde. <laughs> love that yeah, we've spent I, so much I can time imagine. talking about this. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird for all the reasons that you already said, but it definitely was my reading, too, of this, you know, back then before we kind of did the podcast and we're thinking about other implications that, you know, just as you said, maybe Lockheed can talk and he's just doing it to to mess with Pete. Because it reminded me, there's so many examples of that, but like <laughs> the, dumb, the dumb version of that trope that it reminded me of was like, oh my God, this is such a left field reference <laughs> from like 1993 WWF wrestling like the feud between Doink the Clown and Crush, where Crush wasn't totally sure if Doink the Clown was a figment of his imagination. And this is how, like, Doink messed with him. Like, <laughs> it was one of the funniest gimmicks. So it just occurred to me that it reminded me of that, which again, total left field reference. But what are we here for if not to apply <laughs> left field references to these comics from 30 years ago? Yeah. I would have gone with Michigan J. Frog and the Looney Tunes, but yeah yeah to all their own reference (laughs) that would be the the more iconic reference i think in terms of like i think i asked this of dan when he was here but like he has this whole relationship with his clothes where like his clothes are always ruined he's always wearing the torn clothes i mean like I personally think this scene would have been funnier if Pete wasn't wearing clothes when he chases Lockheed, which kind of seems like how it should play out. And yet he's wearing a different version of the same clothes he's chasing yeah. after. I mean, do you do you have thoughts about about the sartorial splendor of Pete Wisdom, Matt, as we as we transition perhaps to talking about Kurt's sartorial splendor? I think Pete Wisdom is just remarkably lazy when it comes to dressing <laughs> and it just makes life easier to not have to decide what he's wearing that day and it is a easy blend in outfit wherever you go so spy wise yeah an off the rack black suit you're there are very few places you're going to stand out and the that might again be me giving more credit and more just like it is intentional because wisdom is not a superhero wisdom stands against that world yeah. so he wears a suit yeah absolutely all right let's talk about let's talk about kurt's new look because uh, it's not it, it's complicated the way this is supposedly the debut of his new look but he's not actually going to get the new costume for like another couple of issues he kind of slowly transitions into his new look but this is technically the start of it i mean i'll come to you first for it matt did nightcrawler need to be redesigned at this time how do you feel about his new look did he need to be no nightcrawler's look was iconic and it worked but this was the 90s so everyone was getting some sort of redesign. Kurt was the last holdout. I guess. I mean, Pretty I guess him yeah. and Megan. Yeah, Megan got a, a redesign in like issue twelve or something like that. Yeah, but he was still in his original costume. Kitty's been wearing the X Men blue and gold for a while now, and so I guess it just felt like it was the time to do it. And Pacheco, this might be again Pacheco that he you know wanted to leave his stamp on the book. So what better way to do it than redesign Nightcrawler? There's so much not knowing if Ellis writes Marvel style or full script on this. Yeah. That I I wonder, like, the very first 
narrative panel of the issue with the the comment about Gene wondering why the mailman just always leaves the mail and runs off. I was like, was that in the script or did Pacheco just draw her picking up the mail like that? And Ellis wrote that in because he thought it was a fun little quip. When I I see things like that, that's the thing that always pops into my head, wondering how a script comes in from a comic, whether or not we're getting the writer having to respond to an a quirky piece of art because when I before we got to that panel I was like that weird that Gene's picking the mail from oh okay they're explaining that huh yeah I like that I like when you get sort of the discussions with creators about what their process is there I mean I'll put the I'll put the question to you Andrew I mean how are you feeling about Kurt transitioning into this new look oh, I have so many mixed feelings um one of the issues mixed I think we're having feelings. in the 90s I love it I, I... <laughs> I don't love the look, I'll say that, but it is a very dated look, which is, I think, what they wanted at the time. Just this idea of you have this legacy character who's been around since the 70s, um, and as a result of that, he kind of ages himself just through simple repetition of the visual pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you want to make Excalibur young, and you want to make every comic young at this point in the 90s, right? It makes sense to give him a youthful new look uh, as a way to reinvent him in order to make it kind of make sense. So I'm not in love with the look, but I understand what it represents and and how it works within that space. At the same time, I thought Ellis did a fantastic job of setting up the looks. I I, I like the idea from the story beats that like Amanda saw, as you said, somebody in this look and asked Kurt to put on the look. Like that's kind of awesome and speaks a lot to their relationship. And I even love that um, Megan decides to change her look in response to seeing Kurt have a new look. Cause that feels like dragging out older conflicts that I was sad to see go away. Oh yeah. I think that that's giving it too much credit, but I do like that interpretation <laughs> of that relationship. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with all the things that everybody is saying. And I know that it's a, it's a contentious Nightcrawler look because I know people that love this look. I have a dear friend who we were chatting. I won't say her name because I won't put her on blast, but we were chatting, you know, online and we chatted about this before and this page where like Kurt is wearing these torn, torn shorts and debuting this look. She, thinks that this is one of her favorite nightcrawler pages they look so sexy on this page she loves this look and i totally respect that i know we're gonna have somebody on in a couple of issues that really likes the new costume and is gonna say some nice things about it as well it's not my favorite i mean i already like have mentioned this on previous pods that it's not my favorite although i do find it a really interesting costume we'll talk about the costume a little bit later but just in terms of like this page and sort of the introduction of the look i mean absolutely that's a lot of interesting character context that like amanda Mm -hmm. saw another person with this look and then it's unclear whether she asked him to do the look or whether he decided to do the look based on that and there's a lot of interesting subtext to the Kurt and Amanda relationship which is never going to get teased out in any run of comics let alone this run of comics in a way that's going to satisfy me but we brought up on the pod before the subtext of them having an open relationship I believe on our last episode I read a letter that was interestingly chosen to be printed saying that they have an open relationship so clearly like yeah there was a letter in the last issue that was like yeah they have an undemanding copy of that issue that's yeah fascinating to me yeah so the letter was like yeah they have i mean basically saying they have an a relationship in which they come and go and sometimes become lovers but if kurt had like a one and only like amanda would walk him down the aisle kind of thing which was all the components of like (laughs) this is clearly an open relationship and again we know that letter pages are political spaces what gets chosen to be printed in there right. says something about the, uh, the the agenda of the people making the book so again interesting choice there 
that is absolutely fascinating to me as as someone who's been noodling around a piece about some of the stuff going on with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy and mm. the seeming transition of them from at least open if not fully polyamorous during the Palmiotti and Connor era mm -hmm. into a more traditional monogamous relationship under G. Willow Wilson. Uh, it's just interesting to see hints and touches of that here, even here. I agree. And like, yeah, it's always interesting how that gets negotiated in a code-approved superhero comic, right? Because there's only so much subtext we can do in the syrup. And I mean, as someone who is, I, I will admit, chuckling at it, reading it, thinking like, as someone who is proudly polyamorous, like, I don't know how comfortable I would be if either of my wife or my other long-term partner came to me and said, you know, I really would want you to dress like this guy. <laughs> weird like, say, it's a bit weird yeah, <laughs> saying oh he looked hot like sure that i'm absolutely fine with that but you think you could maybe i was like oh don't know if i would go there myself <laughs> but that might be my personal failing i don't know oh my god no i mean that's a that's a interesting component of it i don't know that i would necessarily like feel like that's a positive component of the other part of the relationship but like yeah it certainly like suggests i don't know a larger context for kurt and amanda's relationship i'll put it that way yeah that you know I we don't see on very page much a lot argue, of this book. I, I would very much argue that there's no way kurt would do that without being prompted <laughs> in, in the way that I read Kurt, you know, I mean, he would never just do that to to please Amanda. She had to ask him. That's interesting. I mean, the thing that I like about this page and sort of the fashion choices here is like how dated Kurt's fashion is. Because again, yeah. that's like the point, right? But we've talked before about the importance of Kurt's relationship to clothes, right? That they're sort of an important way that he feels more human, you know, expressing himself through his clothes is an aspect of the character that comes up from time to time. And having that represented here is really good, I think. And that's going to be something that Pacheco carries through and, and Casey Jones as well, because we're going to see some good domestic scenes by Casey Jones as well in terms of having the characters you know, all of the characters. But again, I often particularly note this for Nightcrawler just because there have been times and this continues, you know, right up into modern comics where other characters will be wearing casual clothes, but Kurt will be in his costume. And there's an implied thing there about Kurt's difference and like his inhumanity and stuff. And I think putting him in casual clothes is really important. So having him be in a really dated casual look here and experimenting with fashion and experimenting with a new look. I mean, all of that does speak to character character to me regardless of my personal yeah. feelings about his choice of look so in that sense i'm in favor of it and yeah i'm looking forward to talking more about the costume once we once we get it revealed on panel and more than just the clothes this is our first example of kurt with facial hair which will become yeah. a heated discussion over the recent <laughs> years with kurt and, kurt and his various attempts at different types of facial hair oh my god and the mechanics of that um <laughs> are questionable <laughs> but it is not something that particularly bothers me but like on twitter anytime somebody mentions like kurt with a beard people are like but the mechanics of it i was like i just he can also teleport i don't really care <laughs> but like it bothers they're not, people they're not bothered by the fact that he has like normal hair too I know, like, that, I mean, like, yeah that, you, you think that 
if you're you're willing to be bothered by fi- by a beard, it also hair on the top of his head makes about as much sense as a beard. <laughs> I know. I think it's the mechanics of like if he's furry, how does he shave the beard like without <laughs> shaving off his fur? And I agree that that's a bit of a question, but I'm also like again, this is a world in which magic <laughs> exists. I'm not terribly troubled by it, but I know it's an issue that tortures some fans, and I want to respect that. <laughs> There is an episode of The Simpsons where Homer is shaving right before going out in a date night with Marge while Bart is sitting and talking to him. And you see Homer shave and for about two seconds, yeah. <laughs> his model is changed and he's purely yellow without the stubble. And then the stubble just immediately reappears. Let so that be your guide to yeah. what happens when Kirk shaves. It magically reappears. There you go. Yeah, I mean it's very funny when he when he gets the beard in X Men Red and it just <laughs> it happens basically over the course of a day if you track it. Very funny. Anyway, Andrew, please. Just for clarification, what is this facial hair? Is it technically a soul patch? I I feel like it becomes more of a goatee, but like the soul patch was very nineties, so I think that's actually what he's rocking here. Okay. I mean, you're a gentleman. You probably know better than me. <laughs> Nope. As someone with <laughs> remarkably patchy and slow-growing facial hair, no. <laughs> All right, let's go around and do some final thoughts, see if there's anything that we want to circle back to. Um, I'll give you a chance to go first, Andrew. Anything else about this issue that you that you want to talk about that we haven't got a chance? Um, I think one of the things that I liked about it is the idea of um, let's make Excalibur play soccer instead of baseball. Yeah, That's a I nice little like bit of... Yeah, I, I think I wish the game had been explored a little bit more, um, particularly in terms of how it's working within that space and amongst the participants. Um, but I thought it was a really cool touch. And I, I even like that Ellis justified it very ably by, you know, Kurt pointing out I'm German. German soccer teams are amazing right now. Um, so I thought that was, an, again, another nice little beat i would have liked to see more exploration up yeah absolutely i mean uh, i hate to even bring this up because i'm sure i brought it up when i talked to dan about it as well but like uh, this introduction of megan's new costume (laughs) 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 i mean you know i don't want to harp on it it's um it's an image in which a nip slip is strongly suggested based on the way that the breasts are drawn and the costume is designed i don't love it I think that this is like sexy in the wrong way for Megan. Yeah. I think Megan is a very sexy character and that's great, but this is like porny sexy in a way that I don't think suits the character of Megan. So that would be like my basic critique of it. But honestly, I don't want to harp on it. It's going to get drawn a little bit differently in different issues, depending on who's drawing it. I don't like this particular image of it that much personally, again, for the reasons I already said, but I'm just going to note it. We don't have to talk about it at length. <laughs> um, Matt, anything that you would like to circle back to? as we bring today's fascinating discussion to a close the i think maybe one plot moment we didn't touch on about the 80 that are in here is this is also the first appearance of scratch who becomes ever so briefly pete wisdom's arch nemesis who is interestingly parallel to wisdom in a lot of ways they wear the same suit only scratches Mm -hmm. isn't torn up scratch has that black the the black air tattoo though and the scars and his powers are seemingly very similar to wisdom's in that he obliterates all of shaw's guards in the same way and while it's not established really here this character seems to be set up to be a foil 
a player on the other side to wisdom. Yeah, it's like I had so much trouble. I'm glad that you brought it up because I had so much trouble keeping track of all the characters in this issue. I mean, in part, again, because of the sameness of some of the facial expressions and stuff, and just because there are so many characters that are just sort of name-checked here. But um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to return to that dynamic in some in some future issues and discussions about this book. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, I am just going to wrap up with a brief letter from the Sword Stokes letters page um, about a member of Excalibur that returned in this issue. So this is from John Prive or Prive, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name, John from the past, but this is your letter. Dear Suzanne and Warren, it pains me to inform you that a member of Excalibur is missing. He has not appeared for several issues and I am worried. A veteran of interstellar battles should not disappear <laughs> simply because someone forgot to include him. If you still cannot remember who is missing, here is a short description. Draconian, male, six limbs, purple skin, yellow eyes, fiery breath, etc. Lockheed! He is the reason I collected every issue of Excalibur to date and my favorite character in the Marvel Universe. Please return this diminutive dragon to the pages of Excalibur at all haste. Make my Marvel. And of course, the editor responds, your wish is our command, John. Lockheed, finally. I mean, what do we think? Do we think that Lockheed was forgotten about and then kind of brought back? Because he did disappear quite abruptly from the pages. Knowing how well Ellis read previous Excalibur, <laughs> probably forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> or just didn't like him. <laughs> also a distinct possibility. <laughs> I thought either of those possibilities made a lot of sense. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now. More than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. <laughs> there are other worlds. This one is done with me. Anyway, I think we will wrap things up there other than to say, Matt, thank you so, so dearly for joining us. I know you're swamped with podcasting duties at the best of times, so we're so happy that you can make time for our lull pod. Um, we've talked about some of your stuff already, but please remind our lovely listeners of everything that you get up to. If you would like folks to find you online, whereabouts can they find you and what pods and projects should they be checking out? So your best bet to find what I do is head over to ComicsXF where Tuesdays sees WMK, Thursdays sees Bat Chat with Matt and Will, Friday is the accompanying Bat Chat print column where Will and I talk about the that week's Bat comics. Also, a monthly roundup of the X titles that aren't being covered individually with Tony Thornley over there. And Tony and another writer, Armand Babu, and I are currently working on a report card of the first round of launches from the current Dawn of DC initiative. Oh. <sighs> because nice. Lord knows I don't have enough going on. <laughs> <laughs> not even talking about the, pr the prospect of a third podcast that would be not as frequent that I'm not ready to pull the trigger on just yet. But yes, I am that crazy. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of Armand, uh, he and I teamed up to review issue number one of the Avengers relaunch this week. So by the time this episode drops, that'll be out in the world. Wonderful writer, wonderful co-writer. And yeah, please do check out all of that wonderful coverage at ComicsXF. Um, yeah, Matt, just thanks. Thanks so much again for, mm-hmm. for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Next, we will be discussing Excalibur number 97, Counterfire, in which Kirk crashes another plane and we catch up with the weird happenings of Alistair Stewart. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we We've got some fun extras and via Twitter at GoshGollyWow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew, for another heavenly convo. Thank you, Matt, for mixing it up with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Music